0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John, chapter 2. We'll be looking again at verses 3 through 11. And for those of you that are visiting with us or don't have your Bible with you today, feel free to use the blue Bibles in the pew pocket, and you'll find that on page 1021. Again, we'll be looking this morning at 1 John, chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. Let me read for us. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. What a sobering text. It's so black and white. So, either or. It seems like, for John, you're either in one category or the other. There is no in-between, no alternative. Obedience equals assurance of salvation. Disobedience equals no assurance. Loving the brothers means being in the light. Hating the brothers means not being in the light. It's pretty stark. And it strikes at the heart of the popular partial devotion to God. Most people that we know, even maybe some here today, would prefer an in-between category. We don't like the idea of extremes. We're not either or, we're more both and. And so a text like this is uncomfortable. The popular sentiment, though, is Very well captured in a small poem reading entitled $3 Worth of God by William Rees. Let me read it for you. Keep in mind it's a parody, but it's kind of sobering. I would like to buy $3 worth of God. Not enough to change my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk and a nap in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love someone I don't like or help someone I don't know. I want happiness, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, but not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a carryout bag. I would like only $3 worth of God. You know anybody like that? Someone who believes in God but does not behave like God? Someone who claims to know God but does not show it. Someone who calls himself a Christian but does not conduct himself like one. Maybe you even see these inconsistencies in yourself at times. Can you really only have a few dollars worth of God? Can you really believe in Him without it dramatically affecting your behavior? Our text from this morning and the text that we were looking at last week gives us a clear answer, doesn't it? As we've seen, the entire book of 1 John is replete with tests of authenticity, signs of genuine conversion, indications of real fellowship. There's a primary benefit to this, and that is assurance. 1 John wasn't written to scare us, it was written to assure us And we should be looking at these tests so as to be able to examine our own lives and assure our own hearts when we could doubt our authenticity or our sincerity. But there is a secondary purpose. It isn't just for assurance, but it's also for examination. This is to actually call to light some of those who only want a few dollars worth of God. John wants to make it clear not only that some people are in the faith, but he goes out of his way often to make sure that they know that some people are not in fellowship with God. He doesn't just describe what the genuine believer looks like, but he also describes what the fake one looks like, and he is doing that with some tests. The primary test, the first one that he gives is the test of belief. What do you believe about Jesus? I think most in our popular culture today who claim to be Christians could pass the belief test. They would believe that Jesus is fully human, fully God. That he is the atonement for their sin. He satisfied God's wrath on the cross. If you believe that this morning, be assured you have passed, indeed, one part of the test. But only a part. That's not all that he gives. It isn't just the test of belief, but he also adds the test of behavior. And this is what we've been examining in verses 3 through 11. Last week we saw one very specific test of behavior, and that is someone who is truly a believer, someone who can be assured of their salvation, is someone who obeys God's commandments. I mean, that's just what the text says. They have a pattern of obedience, not perfection of obedience. The other passages have already made that clear. But it certainly like marks the way that one regularly lives. And I like that. It's clear. You obey God. But there's something unclear about it. Do you notice it? If I say that you can assure yourself of your salvation by whether or not you obey God's commands whether or not you live like Jesus, well, there's still a pretty vague notion of obeying God's commands and living like Jesus because we can cherry-pick the commands that we want and we can cherry-pick the features of Jesus that we happen to like. It's broad. It's way broad. But John won't leave it there. He says that if you want to be able to assure yourself of your salvation via the behavioral test, you will not only look at your obedience to God's commands generally, that's what we saw last week, but you will also test yourself via affection for other believers specifically. That's the second point. There's the general principle of obedience to God's law, but then there's the specific one of love for other believers. Notice how John was talking about command if you obey his commandments 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 plural but now when he gets here in verses 7 through 11 he talks about commandment singular commandment he does it four times in two verses he is still concerned for them to be able to assure themselves on the basis of not just obedience generally but affection specifically affection for other believers in particular So this is a rather dense portion of Scripture. We're going to focus today on verses 7 through 11. And if you were reading through that or you tried to study it on your own this week, it can be kind of hard to follow. So I want to kind of forecast where we're headed here just to help you take notes and organize your thoughts. This is all about the command to love, the command to love other believers. But in verses 7 and 8, he gives the introduction of the command to love. There's, there's a build-up. He's going to draw attention to it. He wants to make sure that it gets the recognition that it deserves. It's, what I see in verses 7 through 8 is kind of like a long introduction to a person or a short one. If I just were to say to you, hey, this is my son Gabriel, well, you know everything you need to know insofar as he's my son. But if we had a special speaker today, I would probably spend 60 seconds talking about the person's background and where they came from. I'm adding more emphasis. Gabriel's here all the time. (laughs) The special speaker's not here all the time. It's a more lengthy introduction to underscore the importance of the individual for that particular event. John here is going to spend a lot of time introducing this command. He's going to introduce it as new. He's going to introduce it as old. And we're going to see that in verses 7 through 8. But he not only gives the introductions to this commandment, to love one another, but also the indications of this command. What does this command indicate about us? And we'll see that in verses 9 through 11. So let's begin by looking at this introduction to the command to love other believers. Look at verses 7 and 8 again. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Do you see the contrast? He begins with old commandment terminology that would have underscored the importance of this command for all, but especially for his Jewish readers. Now, I, I do want to mark this note. How he begins verse 7 with Beloved. Here he is about to talk about a command to love. And he is himself expressing his love. He calls them loved ones. Those who are loved, in this case by him. And for any of you who are familiar with John's background, this is pretty significant. John was originally labeled by Jesus as one of the Sons of Thunder. People have wondered often about how he got that nickname. Well, it's probably because he was a boisterous individual. But there was one particular incident in the gospel narratives in which the Samaritans rejected the message of Jesus. And you remember John in particular said, Father, I mean, Jesus called down lightning upon them. Strike them dead for their reception or their lack thereof. I mean, this was a guy who was not marked by love, and yet he would, by the end of his life, be known as the apostle of love. And he demonstrates it here. He's not angry with them. He's kind to them. He expresses his affection and care for them. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment. One that you had from the beginning. He's saying that this command that he's about to talk about is basic to one's fellowship with God. It goes back as far as you can remember. To what command is he referring? Well, it will become clear. He's talking about the command to love. Love your neighbor. Those three words sum up the entire second table of the Ten Commandments. Remember when Jesus was asked about what the most important commandment was? And how did he respond? He said the first and most important commandment is to love God exclusively and extravagantly. But Jesus wouldn't let it rest with the first commandment. Even though the guy only asked about the most important, notice how Jesus always added the second one, and love your neighbor as yourself. That was the way to sum up the entire law. Jesus in that very moment is quoting from Leviticus 19, 18. This had been around forever. God has always intended for his people to love. It was written on their hearts as people made in the image of God. And yet for clarity's sake, in Exodus, it was inscribed in stone so that everyone could know that this was the clear expectation of all those who would have fellowship with God. They not only would express their allegiance to him, but they would also express their affection for one another. They go hand in hand. They're part and parcel. It has always been this way. He says, the old commandment is the word that you have heard. This was basic, fundamental, standard Christian teaching. Christian obligation 101, love your neighbor. First steps in relationship with God, love your neighbor. They knew, contrary to we Americans, they knew that obedience to God, a relationship with God, wasn't a personal relationship only. You hear people talk on those terms all the time. I have a personal relationship with God. And yet it seems the way that scriptures describe our relationship with God is not only personal, but interpersonal. There is no escaping the horizontal obligations that we have to one another if we have some vertical connection to God. And so he says, this is old. Knowing that it's old reinforces the importance of the command. I don't know how things are at your house, but... If you want to frustrate my children, one of the things that you would do is make up a lot of new rules. They don't like new rules. Especially ones that are thought up on the spur of the moment because we're irritated about something. But traditionally, old ones they do okay with. They've heard these before. It's in their mind. We can revert back to something. They've been established. I mean, just consider the following scenario. I'm not saying this has ever happened at my house, but maybe. Imagine that you've stumbled across a child that has not been brushing their teeth at night. It has become evident to you through their wretched breath when you kiss them at night and the yellow tint caked on their teeth. Now, the conversation typically goes a little bit something like this. Uh, Your teeth look disgusting. And your breath is wretched. No, it doesn't go like that. No, it goes like this. How, how long has it been since you've brushed your teeth? Child. I don't know. Parent. Why haven't you been brushing your teeth? Child. You didn't tell me to. I don't have to tell you. You already know. This command has been around from the beginning. <laughs> You've been instructed to do this since you were five. This is the old commandment. This is the word that you have heard, to put it in John's terminology. Loving other Christians is as basic as brushing one's teeth. This is part of what it means to be in the family of God. In this case, the command had been around from the establishing of God's law. Just listen to how Paul describes this command in Romans 13. Oh, no one anything except to love each other for the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law for the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore is the fulfilling of the law. So the command to love others has been around for a long time. He wants them to get that. As he's introducing this, this is an important one. Yet at the same time, it was new. Now, new commandment terminology would have underscored and informed the freshness of this command, triggering reflections on the depth and the focus of the command as authorized by the Lord Jesus. Do You see it there in verse 8? Look in your text. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Now this could sound like a contradiction. But John's careful with his wording. In Greek and in logic, there's no contradiction here. First, I'd point out to you that in the original language, the word new often refers to quality, not chronology. So there's two Greek words for new. The one that refers to chronological newness is neo. When we talk about neo-orthodoxy or somebody being a neophyte, it's new. This is the other word. It's not talking about chronologically new. It's talking about qualitatively new. So it's, it's not like it just showed up. It's just it showed up in a new and fresh way. One of our regular attenders, Robert Davenport, likes to collect old cars. And while at his house last year for Christmas, he showed me one of his new old cars. Well, does he not know what he's talking about or was it indeed new and old at the same time? <laughs> I think he knows what he's talking about. Because what had taken place is that modifications had taken place on the car, thereby enhancing the dilapidated original. It was still an old car, and yet at the same time it was new. All of us here, we're even quick to talk about our new home. I don't know many people these days who live in brand new houses. Some of you do. The homes that most of us have moved into are not chronologically new, but they're qualitatively new. They've been outfitted for a different family's needs and taste. It's new, but it's old. So in what way is this commandment new? How had the command to love one's neighbor as oneself been updated or, or repurposed? I want you to think about something for a moment. You need to be aware of some background. John's readers would have been very familiar with his writings. A lot of them were first-generation first generation Christians. And therefore, their only link to Jesus would have been apostolic writing. Well, it is clear for us that John, at least chronologically, has already written his gospel, the gospel of John. And now he's written this letter. They have not yet received the book of Revelation. So they have very little to work with. They may have some copies of the Greek Old Testament, and now they have an official gospel from John, and now they've added to that the letter of 1 John. Needless to say, since they didn't have much to choose from, they would have been thoroughly immersed in John's gospel. And so hearing the the, the two-word phrase, new commandment, would have triggered something within them. They would have known of that. It would have recalled something to mind. I mean, even for those of you who have grown up in church, does does it signal anything? When you hear new commandment, Do you know what it's referring to? Does it bring anything to mind? It should. Take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 13. If you're using the Blue Bibles today, you'll find that on page 900. I don't ask you to do this often, but I think it'd be important to do today. John chapter 13, the Gospel of John. Again, it's page 900 in the Blue Bible if you need it. And in this scene, John, John's readers, he would have, they would have known about this. It's the night of Jesus' betrayal and arrest. He's mere hours away from his wrongful trial and crucifixion. He's already washed their feet, predicted his betrayal, and then he commissions them with a new command, John thirteen thirty three to 35. Let me read it for us. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. You see it? New commandment. So what made this new? Two things its quality, and its focus. To make it even more simple, the how and the who. Two things had been updated here. First was the who. We'll start there. The focus of this command had changed. Jesus doesn't just command us to love our neighbor, but he specifically commands them to love whom? One another. Yes, love for neighbors is still important. Jesus would enforce that throughout his entire ministry. But his his focus here is first and foremost on the Christian community. Now, if you're a careful student of Scripture, you'll notice by this point that Judas Iscariot has already left the room. Look at John 13, 30. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he, talking about Judas, immediately went out and it was night. That's just a few verses previous. So who's left in the room? It's only the real followers of Jesus. And it is to that group that he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you would love one another. John echoes this concern back in 1 John. You'll notice in verses 9 through 11 of 1 John chapter 2 that he keeps referring to love or hate for one's brother. Brother was an affectionate and alternative way of saying those who are inside the church. One scholar who studied this out in more detail than I had the time to do has surmise that fellow men, just like other people on the street, are never, ever in the New Testament described as brothers. We do that sometimes. You hear people talk about, hey bro, how's it going, you know, that kind of thing. But, biblically speaking, a brother is a man or a woman who exists within the company of people who are following Jesus, typically organized in a church. That's why we talk about and sing about family of God. Even the old hymn that we started off singing, the reason why we keep singing that thing is because we love the terminology. It talks about brothers doing this and sisters doing that and us being part of a family. Like this is accurate biblical terminology. We are part of a group. And so the brethren that John are concerned about are the saved individuals, particularly those who existed in the churches of Ephesus at that time. And so the new commandment focuses first on the family of faith, but let's be clear, it doesn't stay there. It's not limited to that. It just starts there. Does that make sense? Logically, Christian love works from the inside out. If Christians treat each, other's, treat each other poorly and they're at each other's throats, why would someone outside of that want to be a part of it? I think I've told you the story of the church that I grew up in, splitting, and the sheriff having to be called out because of fights in the parking lot. Do you think anyone in that community wanted to be a part of that fellowship, that family? Christian love starts at home. Not only in your physical home, I'm talking about home, the local church, the family of faith. This is why, by the way, we make such a big deal out of membership here. We even made another announcement about it today. It's because we want to be clear as to whether or not someone's in the family of faith because we believe that we have a primary responsibility to care for those who are part of that family. We want to know if they truly consider themselves a part of the family of God. The new commandment is new on account of its focus, the who. Believers. But also on account of its quality. Don't miss this. It's not just the who, but it's the how. The new commandment is new because of how we're supposed to do it. The old commandment just said, love your neighbor. The new commandment adds a little prepositional phrase that takes things to a whole new level. It says, love as I have loved you. It's that word agape. It's almost entirely unheard of in the secular literature of John's day. Yet it was regularly used to capture the uniqueness of Christian love. It's often associated with self-sacrifice for the ultimate good of another. Agape love is typically associated with self-sacrifice for the ultimate good of another. So Jesus says, love them Love one another as I have loved you. Think about what's happening here. He is now becoming the new standard for love. He is merely hours away from giving his body and death for these men. You think they would remember what it meant to love like he loved. The other parts of the New Testament pick up on this theme of self-sacrifice for the spiritual well-being of one another as they use this word over and over and over again, this special word for love. I want to give you a few examples. Just listen to them. But they're like the greatest hits of the New Testament, if you will. John 3.16, Romans 5.8. Others not as popular. Ephesians 5.25, 1 John 3.16. I'm just going to read them in succession. Listen for my emphasis. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Romans five eight. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. First John three sixteen. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. This isn't just some casual pat you on the back, hope you're doing okay kind of love. This is giving your life for the spiritual and eternal good of another. That's what's happening in all of these passages. So this is what's happening in Jesus Christ. The new commandment was new because it was qualitatively enhanced, exemplified, and enabled by the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me unpack that for you. When the Son of God entered humanity, he enhanced the command by saying, love each other as I have loved you. If the volume was on four, he turns it up to ten. Then, he exemplified the command by laying down his life for his followers, so he showed them what it looks like by giving everything. And then, he enabled the command through his resurrection and the sending of his Holy Spirit, freeing us from our slavish self-centeredness and setting us free to love one another to this degree. We were never able to do this before. Thus, only real Christians can ever obey this command, and this is why he adds back in 1 John chapter 2, verse 8. Turn back over there. 1 John 2, 8. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you. Notice this which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Now hang with me here because this is beautiful. The new commandment to love is true in him. Now that makes sense. Of course, this is true in Jesus. He can do this. He exemplified this. But notice this. It's not only true in him, but he's saying it is true in you. Just as it was possible for Jesus, so also it is possible for you. Since we've been converted into one of his people, it is already true in us. We need to remember that the love that Jesus exemplified was enabled by him. I was talking about this with one of my children this week who was struggling to show love to another sibling. And typically when I tell stories about my kids, I'm being funny. I'm not being funny here And I want to be extremely careful because I wouldn't want this child to be embarrassed in any way. So if I use vague terminology, just hang with me. We told this child that loving one's brothers and sisters is part of what it means to follow Jesus. So we encouraged this one to pray about it. And it was such a sobering moment because my heart broke for this little one as I heard this confession through tears. But I can't. I can't. I've tried, but I can't. And the reason why I was so stirred by that is because I know that feeling. Especially when you, you struggle to love someone who's close to you. Yet there's good news in this text for us today. We can. We really can. This is already true. In Him and in you. Why continue reading your Bibles? Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Literally, the sun, S-O-N, has come and dispelled the curse of darkness and evil and selfishness and self-centeredness that dominated mankind for so long. A new era has dawned. That's why we sang today, arise, shine, for your light has come. We are in a new epoch. It is a new day. For thousands of years, man had been enslaved to sinful selfishness. And now, because of what Christ has done, he can show the love to the degree that Christ expected in a way that they were never able to do before. The coming of Jesus Christ enabled an age of loving obedience in all those who truly follow him. I say this kindly, but I say this sternly. If you are a true follower of Jesus, don't tell me you can't love. The truth is, if you do not self-sacrificially love other believers, it is not because you can't, it is because you won't. And if you won't, I would question whether or not you are obeying God in a pattern of obedience in the first place anyway. Bottom line, there are no ifs, ands, or buts. You love other believers. We're getting specific now. Church family, I'm saying this as kindly as I can. Do not mess around with lovelessness. Some of you are so concerned that you didn't read your Bible enough or that you maybe didn't give enough money to the church or you don't come as often as you need to. Sure, you can be concerned about all those things, but let me tell you what's as serious as a heart attack. A lack of affection for someone else who truly claims to be a believer. And this brings us from the introduction of the command to love other believers to the indications of it. And you're going to see why this is so serious. What does loving or hating other believers indicate about us or the authenticity of our relationship with God? Well, look at verses 9 through 11. Here are the indications of the command. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother and abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Loving one's brother indicates whether or not one is in fellowship with God who is light. Notice the light terminology being reintroduced here. And he becomes so clear. He gives you a negative example, a positive example, and then just in case you didn't get the contrast, he ends on another negative example. He is concerned that we are crystal clear about the importance of affection in the life of one who claims to be an authentic follower of Jesus Christ. The negative example is in verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Well, this is basic. As was true in the earlier examples, John illustrated... This person making a claim, right? The one who says. We saw that back in verses 4 and 5. The one who says, the one who says, the one who says. Here, the person says, I'm in the light. Since God is light, he's claiming to be on God's team. He's claiming to be in fellowship with God. Since Jesus has dawned a new era of light for his followers, this person is claiming to be in league with Jesus. Yet according to the Bible, such a claim is false advertising if one hates his brother. Hate. It's such a strong word. You know, when I was growing up, my parents wouldn't even allow me to say the word hate. (laughs) I think the only thing they would allow me to hate was the devil. (laughs) I don't know how many in here, and this is... (laughs) I don't know anybody in here who would admit to hating another Christian. I just don't. I I don't. I've never met anyone who claimed to be in the light who actually said, I hate someone that I can recall. Yet John here is so weird. He he allows for no middle ground. No matter how we would define hate, here, let's be honest guys, it's clearly the alternative to self-sacrificing love. So if you're not exhibiting self-sacrificial love for other believers, at least in John's mind, you're in one category or the other. I know you would like to define hate as like murdering someone or keying their car. But John seems to portray it in the absence of the positive. Now, I'll tackle this conundrum in a moment, but notice what he's saying here about this person that hates whoever does it is still in the darkness, please, this is where we want to be so careful. In other words, the person who hates a brother, a a, a supposedly Christian individual, has never entered into, listen, has never entered into the light. He's still in the darkness. He's never been a true follower of Jesus. He's never enjoyed fellowship with God who is light. There's no going back and forth forth between light and darkness like oh well today i'm in the light and well then every once in a while i step out into the darkness because i get off of somebody and you know we just don't get along and then i step back in no it is a one-way street friends once you have gone from darkness into light you stay there and john says if there's any part of you that hates another individual who claims to be a christian you've never ever entered into the light you are still in the darkness because this is so basic to what it means to be a christian Then he gives a positive example, verse 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. This is helpful and clear contrast. There's no claim mentioned here, right? No one's saying anything. They're just doing. It's just conduct. To verify one's authenticity as a follower of Jesus, talk is cheap. All right? Don't care what you say. Care what you do. What does this person do? Well, he loves his brother. He's characterized by this self-sacrificial love for someone who is in the family of God. And what is true of him? It says that he remains or abides in the light. This is the one who's loving his brother. This is a present active indicative verb. Present is significant because it is ongoing, regular, and habitual. Active is important because he actually shows this love. He doesn't just passively receive it from others. Some of you think that love means I'm not actively showing any hostility towards someone. I agree to get along with others. That is not love. Love here is active, it actually exerts itself. And then finally, it is indicative. It is real action in the Greek, folks. It is not hypothetical, it is not aspirational. I intend to show love to someone. I mean to show love, but I don't. I'm trying, I just don't. I, I would like to. None of that. By the way, such a careful understanding of the word love to this point provides such a contrast with the love that's often portrayed by our own world. Friends, don't don't miss this. Define love in biblical terms. I was just watching a documentary a couple weeks ago on Netflix. uh, And it was this series in which they try to explain different topics. And there's all kinds of visuals. It's not boring. Like It's like new stuff is on the screen every few seconds as they're presenting their case. And you would think that if you're watching a documentary that it's just objective fact. (laughs) Well, documentaries are loaded with some type of rhetorical slant. They're trying to argue something, typically. So I was intrigued by one labeled monogamy. It was a documentary on monogamy. I was like, it'd be interesting to see what these unsaved people think of monogamy. (laughs) It was one of the most horrific things I've ever heard in my life. Basically, they totally redefine love. They say that love is an animalistic impulse. That's a desire for another person. Physical attraction to them. And ultimately, they argued by the end of the thing that monogamy should be done away with because our hearts do desire other people in some way, shape, or form, just like animals do. And therefore, we should live like animals. If you think that I am overstating this, I am not joking. What a sick, twisted, perverted, disgusting, insufficient, tawdry description of love. The fact that I would just animalistically fill an impulse for someone. Note the contrast here between Christian love and carnal love. Christian love is an action, not just an affection. Christian love is self-sacrificial, not just self-indulgent. Christian love is concerned for one's eternal well-being, not just one's immediate comfort. Is there affection and pleasure and temporal concern and Christian love? Of course. Of course. But while it is at least that, it is certainly more than that. So, what does this love look like in action? Well, John gives us some indications with this little phrase in the text. You'll see it there. And in him there is no cause for stumbling. This is the only hint we've got. What is he talking about? In him there is no cause for stumbling. In other words, love of a brother actively seeks his spiritual well-being. Anytime you see this this phrase about a stumbling block or someone stumbling or being offended in the New Testament, it's always referring to their spiritual well-being. Jesus speaks about it in the Gospels. Paul speaks about it in Romans 14 and 15. We should be concerned that we're not offending or causing spiritual harm to another brother. He's saying, hey, here's what's true of someone who loves another brother. In that person, there is no cause for stumbling. They're not in any way contributing to the spiritual demise or downfall of any other believer around them. Let's say it positively. They actually care to build up other believers around them. And, I mean, it doesn't take much thought to hurt people <laughs> any of you with loose tongues could attest to that You're like, oh i didn't mean to say that oh i shouldn't have done that just think of children who leave legos on the floor and the damage that it causes to their parents feet did they put that out there to hurt their parents feet no they were just thoughtless they were careless john is saying here that and someone who truly loves jesus they don't leave out their legos They're actually careful about other people around them, and they're concerned for their spiritual good. They exercise extra self-discipline to ensure that the other believers around them are well taken care of and protected. The old commentator Warren Wiersbe summed up this verse so well when he wrote, Love makes us stepping stones instead of stumbling blocks. That's good. Love makes us stepping stones instead of stumbling blocks. Conversely, not caring for the spiritual well-being of other believers could indicate a degree of hatred. Here's just some basic questions for you as you try to assess whether or not you're loving other believers. Do you take actionable interest in the spiritual well-being of other believers in this church? Or are you disproportionately concerned about your personal relationship with God? Here's another one. Do you sacrifice yourself? Notice I'm using the the themes of sacrifice. Do you sacrifice yourself to ensure other members in this church are cared for? How many have visited? Don't raise your hand, but think about it. How many of you have visited one of the members on our care list? If somebody's on our care list at our church, that means that they probably physically can't come to church on their own. As opposed to leaving it up for someone else. How many of you have, or regularly, invite people over to your home when you could have avoided the sacrifice and inconvenience of other people eating your food and getting your house dirty? How many of you have ever prepared a meal when you could have kept those resources and that time for yourself? How many of you have engaged in meaningful spiritual conversation with another brother or sister in Christ at church or in small group, wherever it is, when it would have been easier, when it would have been way more convenient to stay to yourself or just talk about the weather and sports? This is why I say love is self-sacrificial for the spiritual good of another. This is where 1 Corinthians 13 that we read earlier provides such a fitting picture. So many people take this out of context. Context is the key. In context, Paul is referring to the Corinthians' ministry to one another in the church. In chapter 12, the chapter that precedes it, you know what he says about them? He says that they're members one of another. For all of you who would say that membership is unbiblical, that's actually where we get membership from. It means that you belong to a body. And then he gives this extended analogy about how members are serving one another. Different body parts serve and contribute to one another, so also members serve one another. And he's saying they don't get too elevated or concerned about their own spiritual giftedness, but instead they seek to lay it all out and above anything else. They want to ensure that others are taken care of. There would be all about loving. And, and this is what marks the Christian love within the local church membership community. You ready? Patience. Kindness. Not envy. Not boasting. No arrogance or rudeness. Not insisting upon one's own way. Not being irritable or resentful. Not rejoicing at wrongdoing, but rejoicing with the truth. Listen to this. Bearing all things. Believing all things. Believing the best about people. Hoping all things. Trusting for the best for people. Enduring all things. All things. (laughs) Enduring putting up with them. And then, love never ends. It never gives up. Keep it in context. Does this characterize your relationships with other believers in this church? As you work your way through 1 Corinthians 13, are you thinking, yeah, yeah, that's me? If it's not, he gives us one more negative example. Verse 11. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Man, he wanted them to know about their spiritual condition, did he not? <laughs> he doesn't just say, you're in the darkness. All right, that's clear. He says, you're walking in the darkness. This is where you live. It isn't just where you visit from time to time. This is, this is your old stomping grounds, darkness. Not only that, but the darkness is so deep. It says, it has blinded his eyes. Paul could have said, And you can't see. But instead, he talks about physical blindness. You are actually so enslaved to darkness and sin that you have zero capacity, apart from the regenerating grace of God, of ever getting out of this. I know that we would tend to think that a sin like this, if it characterizes our life, it's just like, oh man, I hate that he doesn't have that. I wish he would be a little more loving, or she would be a little more loving. Here it says, this is proof positive that you have never belonged to the family of God. And you never will, apart from some special intervention of his grace. It's a big deal. One commentator pointed out, in John's world, there is no twilight. Think about that for a moment. In John's world, there is no twilight. What does he mean by that? Well, for us, we have day and night, but we also have times in between. We have dawn and twilight. In John's world, it's either day or it's night. There's nothing in between. No gray, no middle option. And when it comes to the assurance of salvation in regard to Christian love, it really is either or, not both and. So the question that we really have to wrestle through, I wish there was a third option. I don't have any backup verses here. I'm just going to, I have to present it the way that it's written, folks. And there's two options. And if there are only two options, as indeed this text presents, we're left with a couple of questions. On the basis of your love for other believers, are you, one, assured of your relationship with God or are you unsure of it? Don't you want them to say, well, this is what happens for those of you who struggle to love from time to time. (laughs) Not in there. Now, we already know what to do with sin. We've already covered that. But if there's only two choices, what are we left with? Love for other Christians. I will only say it this way positively. I can't answer all the questions, but I will say this. Love for other Christians is one of the most easily identifiable traits of the new birth. If you want to assure yourself and know whether or not you're really a Christian, you just want to know, am I regularly sacrificing myself for the good of other believers? This is actually well attested in history. William Bradford, the pilgrim leader and the first governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, illustrated this vividly in his journal of Plymouth Plantation. Now, as he wrote about varied responses to that first winter, you may remember that from U.S. history. 1620 to 21, a devastating time. There were 100 of the original settlers. At this point, they were down to 50. But as Bradford writes in his journal, he becomes clear that there were really, even though there were 50 individuals, there were only two groups. Now, I want you to pardon a little bit of the old language. Okay, I'm going to read from his journal for a moment. But I want you to see if you can note the difference between the two groups of the remaining survivors. Of the fifty that were left, in the time of most distress, there was but six or seven persons who, to their great commendations, be it spoken, spared no pains, night or day, but with abundance of toil and hazard of their own health, fetched them wood, made them fires, dressed them meat, made their beds, washed their loathsome clothes, clothed and unclothed them. In a word, did all the homely and necessary offices for which dainty and queasy stomachs cannot endure to hear named and all this willingly and cheerfully, without any grudging in the least, showing herein their true love unto their friends and brethren, a rare example and worthy to be remembered. All right, there's one group. But he continues. But now, amongst his, this company, there was far another kind of carriage in this misery than amongst the passengers. For they that before had been boon companions in drinking and jollity in the time of their health and welfare began now to desert one another in this calamity, saying they would not hazard their lives for them. They should be infected by coming to help them in their cabins. And so, after they came to lie by it, would do little or nothing for them, but if they died, let them die. And then he gives this final testimony from one of the Christian caretakers who actually went into the lodgings of one of the unsaved who was on his deathbed. And this man, as he's dying, cries out, Oh, you, I now see. Show your love like Christians indeed to one another. But we let one another lie and die like dogs. Even the unsaved man can recognize it. The mark of the true Christian. Self-sacrificial love for other believers. The mark of the non-Christian. It's a dog-eat-dog world. You just do what's best for you. Do you not find it fascinating that John doesn't connect assurance and or evidence of authentic salvation to one's church attendance, to one's giving records, to one's baptismal certificate, to one's Bible knowledge, to one's religious religious experiences, to one's emotional state, even, even, even to one's profession of faith. Don't get taken in. The biblical basis... For the assurance of salvation is rather simple. We can be assured on the basis of our belief. Okay? That's the first. I don't ever want to presume that. If you're here today, I would ask you again, have you ever believed or trusted in Jesus Christ alone to save you from your own sin and the ways that you've offended God? If you're trusting in that, it's very possible that you are indeed a believer. And I'll say this as clearly as I can. If you're not trusting in Him for that this morning, you are not truly in fellowship with God. But that's only one part of the test. The test of belief. But the second is the test of behavior. The behavior is a pattern of obedience to God generally, but specifically. If we were just going to like boil it on down like to one thing, it would be this. Self-sacrificial love for the ultimate good of other believers. Is that true of you? I think there are a few arenas in which you could examine this in your own life. These are just some general categories, not suggestions, of things to look at. I think one of the first areas in which you should look and examine this in yourself would be in your marriage and in your family. Obviously, if you're not married, your family. But if you can't love and show affection for other people who claim to follow Jesus, who are your own flesh and blood, how in the world could you ever do that for someone who doesn't? Who doesn't belong to you, who you have no natural affinity for? If there's any bitterness or hostility or hatred within the family, I'm talking about the physical family or legal family dynamic of people who truly claim to be believers, I would encourage you to examine yourself. And if you see self-sacrificial love in those aspects, friends, feel free to assure yourself. There's an, another arena, I think, that could be examined here. And that is the arena of our mercy toward others. I'm talking about just physical acts of mercy to other believers who are in need. I mean, ask yourself, is there anyone in this church who you know would be greatly encouraged if they knew you cared? Do you let them know that? What brother or sister would benefit from an expression of Christian love? Who could use your assistance to help them progress along the path of righteousness? What brother or sister do you know is struggling with sin or loneliness and could benefit from your prayer or your personal encouragement? It could be tangible, everyday, ordinary things. It is I mean, just as basic as meals and showing up at birthday parties and giving people a phone call. I mean, it doesn't have to be something huge and elaborate, but was it a sacrifice? And was it for the good of someone else in the family of God? That's an arena you can examine. And then the final one I think that you could look at is in the membership arena itself. Have you clarified your relationship with other believers in this church and said, you know what? I will be your brother or your sister in Christ. What I prayed for, Ione and Lloyd, I acknowledged in my prayer today that their physical family isn't around here. The question is, are we going to be family for them? Are we willing to clarify that? Or are we going to stand on the periphery and say, I've got my family, you've got your thing over there. Do we clarify our intentions to care for other believers? And if you are a member, how are you regularly sacrificing your life like Christ for the spiritual well-being of others? I pray, dear church family, that the church covenant that we read every time we gather together as members isn't just words but action. We have a true obligation to one another. It isn't just about our personal relationship with God, although that's where it starts. It is about our interpersonal one as well because he says this is the test. However you answer and assess these arenas, whatever you decide to do, I want you to remember that obedience to God and love for other believers are the incontrovertible outcomes of genuine faith. So examine or assure yourselves carefully. In the end, I think we know the answer to our opening question. There is no such thing as $3 worth of God. No middle ground. No both and. It's either or. Light or darkness. Obedience or disobedience. Where do you belong today? Let's pray. Father, examine us. Search our hearts. Show us whether or not we're truly marked by Christian love. Assure the hearts of of the genuine, of the authentic. Bring to mind even in this prayer specific incidences of self-sacrificial love. Glorify Yourself as they acknowledge that those came from You and the love that You've placed within them. Lord, for those of us who truly walk in the light we know that clouds sometimes pass and things aren't as bright as they need to be. So empower all who believe for greater works of love. In whatever ways we fail. In whatever ways we've been inconsistent with our profession. I pray you bring them to mind. That we repent of them. That we would enjoy the forgiveness and the pardon that you offered in 1 John 1, 8 and 10 and 2. Verses 1 and 2. May we recall that today and then move forward and live excited lives of obedience to you. Mark this love, this body, this fellowship, this family. By this new commandment. By Christ-like love for one another. And from there we pray it would extend to those who do not yet know you. It's in Jesus' name we pray and ask all of this. Amen.